Welcome to the 11th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green, and don't worry, I won't say that every week. <laughs> this week, Barbara Kruger returns to the program. The Art Institute of Chicago is presenting Thinking of You, crossed out, I mean me, crossed out, I mean you, a survey that spans Kruger's career. The exhibition includes works on vinyl, site-specific installations, animations, and multi-channel video installations installed in many disparate parts of the Art Institute. It was organized by the Art Institute, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and the Museum of Modern Art in New York. It will travel to those two institutions after closing in Chicago on January 24th, 2022. It was curated by five people, James Rondo, Robin Farrell, Michael Govan, Rebecca Morse, and Peter Ely. The handsome catalog was co-published by LACMA and Delmonico Books. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about 45 to 60 bucks. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Kruger has also fulfilled a commission from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston titled Body Language. The work, which is installed on the exterior of the Gardner's Renzo Piano designed edition, features a detail from Titian's painting Diana and Acteon and was installed on the occasion of Titian, Women, Myth, and Power at the museum. Kruger's work is on view there through February 1st, 2022. On the second segment, Samantha Nye joins me to discuss her work on the occasion of her inclusion in two exhibitions at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. If you enjoy the program, please give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We're almost at 400 reviews there. Every review helps more people find the program. Barbara Kruger, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents... Conversations with Artists Celebrating the Nancy and Rich Kinder Building, featuring artists Amalia Mesa Baines and David Taylor, in conversation with curators Malcolm Daniel and Mari Carmen Ramirez. This series brings MFAH curators together with artists whose works shaped the inaugural installations and special commissions for the Nancy and Rich Kinder Building. Join the conversation on the U.S.-Mexico border as the artists discuss how their work explores the complex dynamics, agents, and victims of La Frontera, the border. The work of both artists is on view in the border installation on the third floor of the Kinder Building. Join the lecture, live streaming on Monday, November 1st at 6.30 p.m. Register in advance at mfah.org artists conversations. Now on view at the Getty Center, Holbein, Capturing Character in the Renaissance, is the first major presentation of Hans Holbein the Younger's work in the United States. Named a show to see this season by the New York Times, the exhibition features captivating portraits the German artists created for a wide range of patrons, including scholars, statesmen, and courtiers in the 16th century. Explore Renaissance culture and discover how Holbein's drawings and paintings eloquently evoke his subjects' personal identities. This exhibition is co-organized by the Morgan Library and Museum and is presented in English and Spanish. We invite you to make free, advanced reservations at getty.edu today. On Thursday, November 11th, please join me, Odili Donald Odita, in the Sheldon Museum of Art for a live audience digital taping of the Modern Art Notes podcast. Odita's painting, Passage, is on view now in the exhibition Point of Departure at the Sheldon. Other major Oditas are on view at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University, and more. To join the live audience taping via Zoom, go to go.unl.edu slash odita to register or visit the events page on the Sheldon's website at sheldonartmuseum.org. And we're back. Barbara Kruger, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, good to be back. (laughs) The first couple pages of the catalog for the current exhibition feature snapshots of TV screens taken by your friend, Ann Goldstein, who of course is now at the Art Institute. The images show your work, public installations of your work, as the backdrop against which the historically racist Los Angeles Police Department responded to anti-racism protests in 2020. And a note in the catalog, a little kind of added late in, in publication note, details that these pictures and others of your work in oh so public places, including in newspapers, on magazine covers and whatnot, was your idea. Why did you want to effectively kick off the project or at least the catalog this way? Obviously, we live in very intensely provisional times. And at that moment, there was 
extra intensity happening eight blocks from my house here in LA. I thought that since those images were available, by the way, they were taken by Anne, also by Edder Satina, and by myself. You know, I, I just saw them pop on the TV screen. I said, oh my God, you know. I just thought <laughs> that since the since the show had been postponed, that this was a way to somehow keep the contemporaneity of the moment in the catalog, although most of my work and the images and texts is not moment or event specific. These were a collection of moments and events that I felt needed capturing in the catalog. The first time you were on the show, which was nine and a half years ago now, one of the things we talked about was that and is again now how there is this weird cosmic thing where the world always seems to come around to your work. And we talked about that at length. We'll have a link to that show on the show page at man, manpodcast.com. It's part of our conversation from almost a decade ago that had a lot in recent years. As I've been reading the catalog for the, the show that's now at the Art Institute and looking at the pictures of the installation there, and if you're on Art World Twitter or Art World Instagram, you've seen a lot of them, and we'll have more on manpodcast.com. I found myself thinking a lot about Picture Readings, which is a book you made, a book you published, self-published in 1978. I don't want to start by misrepresenting that book in part because I've only read it digitally. So as we as we kind of jump into Picture Readings, could you kind of quickly describe what it is and why you made it? You know, architecture has always been a very compelling practice to me. One of my first ideas was to become an architect, never could make that happen. Nevertheless, I think that its ability, not only in its formalized, professionalized name as architecture, but in its sheltering for both personal and corporate bodies of the built environment, the creation of a built environment, is a tremendously powerful structure in cultures globally. I think that that structuring sort of determines how we feel, how long we live, what our days and nights are like. I think that the places we wake up and go to sleep that might offer us shelter or not are incredibly determinant. And this book, this small project, was a sort of conflation of my interest in a particular kind of residential architecture and the sort of fictive narratives that I constructed about people's days and nights inside these buildings, mainly photographed in California and Florida. So there's a block of text on one side of a two-page spread, and there's a black and white photograph on the other, and that runs throughout the book, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's great fun to read. It's both smart and funny and fantastical. Only the stucco in the photographs seems at all 1978. I mean, it all could have been written like, you know, five minutes ago. And for me, reading through the book melds a, a certain new topographics style presentation of the built environment. Think Lewis Baltz minus the, the compositional intensity with text about the hopes and desires often of youth. And I don't know if that was your first early joining of textual address with structures with the built environment, but it was awful close. So. What did that work or that project do for you? What did you learn from it? Well, you know, I'd like to say where I think it came from, aside from my interest in residential architecture and how it determines class and race and so much. I had done an earlier project, which was a curation in Buffalo at SUNY let me remember. Anyway, it was called Creative Perspectives in American Photography. And what I did was take what I felt was one of the quintessential images of sort of 20th century, mid 20th century, late 20th century American photography. And that was the frontal view of a residential structure, unpeopled, but nevertheless, so many photographers has engaged, have engaged that. And I gathered a lot of these images together and did this exhibition, a curated exhibition. The interesting thing for me was, and I believe this was about 1978 or something like that, is that I approached a number of galleries to borrow photographs. And this was a time when the photo gallery subculture was very much divided from so-called art world 
viewings and galleries. And when I approached art galleries who somehow handled some of these artists, it was capable to get prints, but the photo galleries didn't want to loan it to some place up in Buffalo that they'd never heard of, you know? So what I did was I reproduced images of all those photographs, the same size and line the walls of these rooms. So in many ways it was, you know, a retaking of the pictures, but it really was out of necessity that I couldn't get these pictures from people. And yet I just wanted the images. So what you see in this book is in many ways, a continuation of my interest in the frontal view of those residential structures, focusing on windows. These are tighter shots and what possibly went on inside them. I just saw it as, as a project that seemed to work well in books. Having come out of magazine design, it was sort of natural for me to deal with a page, image left or right, text opposite. And it just seemed like a very possible, it was black and white. I published it myself, and that was always expensive at that time. I felt it was economical way for me to get my ideas out about the built environment, and the bodies within it. The room wraps, as you call them, these immersive environments that in which a viewer is surrounded by text come along 13 years later in 1991. Is there a relationship between text surrounding a viewer and, and that initial 1978 book? Did, did one, as it turns out, kind of eventually lead to the other? Again, it goes back to, at that point, I was being able to what I call spatialize my work. And that was sort of a further move into my engagement with what some might call architectural space or um, sort of more enveloping a body rather than having a 2D relationship to a viewer. So yeah, that was that was rather thrilling for me. And the first rendition of it was when it was pre-digital. So it was all silkscreen and incredibly expensive. It was a big move for me in terms of scale, but also a way of tying my engagement with pictures and words with the space that contains them. So, So since 1991, you have been installing room wraps. You have since also put words and images on the outsides of buildings. Was part of the idea, or maybe the entirety of the idea, an implication that architecture is active in the ideologies of the people or institutions that inhabit those spaces? You know, I'm not sure about that. I feel that that display, and we're talking about two different kinds of sites, three different kinds. We're talking about outdoor sites, we're talking about sort of gallery sites, and we're talking about so-called museum sites, you know, and they all have different implications and client bases and funding and gatekeeping, you know. In, In terms of the outdoor, I started doing that early on in terms of what was then called very sort of ferocious word sniping in New York of, you know, putting posters up, which were covered 20 minutes later by a concert poster or whatever. And that was one way of me meeting certain eyes, also depending on the neighborhood you put it in. Again, back to race and class, so many levels. And then, of course, the gallery thing or so-called alternative space thing, or again, two two different bifurcated sort of venues. But that was one way of doing it. And that allowed me to really break through in terms of changing what that white room was, you know, and how I would engage the floors and the walls and that. It wasn't until very much later that institutional support came my way and is still reticent to come my, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's not always what it looks. There's always a difference between a figure and a body and, you know, this body waited a long time, you know, so no complaints except for the world, but just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Says the artist with an art Institute, LACMA and MoMA retrospective ish. As she approaches 101, whatever, but nevertheless. With catalog essays written by two of the three directors of those institutions. And I Um, love the catalog. Catalog is quite an object. No, of course, I know. I mean, having this, but I know from my 
last exhibition, which was 20 something years ago at MoCA, which was an incredible breakthrough for me in that great TC space. And it just meant the world to me. And for me, it was all downhill from there because that was such an opportunity, you know. And then it went to the Whitney and it was very problematic. It was condensed and just such a tight space and just brought so many of my own problematics about the work in, in such a sort of condensed area, you know. So I'm really happy to have this opportunity to rethink the work for each venue because it's not a show where you put nails on the wall and hang something. It really does engage the spaces that it is fortunate enough to find itself in, you know. So we talked about the 1978 book and the earliest work in the exhibition sort of comes from just after that. In 1979, you made a work called Untitled, The Work is About, dot, 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 um, ellipses, of course, that's in the exhibition in a refreshed form. And we'll talk about that form in a moment. I do not know this work in its 1979 form. I'm sure it's been exhibited somewhere and I just haven't seen it. But of course, it's, it's a series of texts that finish and complete the phrase, this work, the work is about. Was that a studio exercise made into an object a la Richard Serra's 1967-68 verb list? Or was it always conceived, planned as a, an artwork, as an object? It was written as a text, which was first called Job Description. And it was published in a number of, of books and a number of journals. And over the years, I've added upon, made it longer and longer and longer. And I changed the name to The Work is About, which, by the way, is in the elevator of LACMA, but it's called Shafted there. And, you know, it's hard to read, but it is there. And I did an enlarged version of it. And now it is a single channel video in that enlarged version. But I'd never shown it as a projection before. Yeah. LACMA was the place where it became a text printed on walls. So it started as a kind of self-focusing project? Or, or was it always meant to be shared conceptually and disseminated through through journals? Oh, kind of where did it? Definitely not self-focusing because it's uh, not about my work or even artwork. It's really about aspiration, labor, concentration, focus, definition. It certainly is not like my work is about, you know, it could be seen as that, but it's really much broader, especially how it's grown. But even in its very beginnings, I think it's in my book, Remote Control, you know, intermediate version of it. You know, it's gotten so much longer. There are parts of it that that could be about your work. So one 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 of the phrases is the punishment of binaries. So you know, the the complete phrase would be the work is about the punishment yeah. of binaries, which your work has kind of always been about. <laughs> In the new exhibition, you made it as you you mentioned a moment ago, a single channel video using a, a fairly new kind of LCD projector that allows for a really intense brightness and, and, and heightened contrast between light and dark. And it's one of quite a number of, of, of works that you have, I'm sure I'll use the wrong word here, but in my notes, I typed the word recast as video installations using projectors. What about doing that? What about translating a work into a different medium and, and updating it for new form of presentation was interesting to you? Some of the works had not been, for instance, the Art Forum, that work, Untitled Art Forum, that, that's an animation of my Art Forum cover. So it became a two-channel video where I actually animated the editing that I made in the cover. The other large videos are not projections. They're really huge LEDs of I shopped yeah. up where I am and your body's a battleground and uh, our leader admit nothing. That was an incredible gift to me to be able to do that. It was in my mind's eye. That's one of the thrilling things about this exhibition to me. And I'm so appreciative of the support in making it happen is to have what was in my mind's eye become this actual 
space, this moment, this materiality of seeing these works, which I had done a while ago, and I've animated them and changed them and changed the text and kept the scale kind of similar. But nevertheless, it was a real chance to take gelled moments and make them move. So there's a lot of work in the exhibition, which, which is moving image work, but also there's a lot of audio work. So if you're in an elevator, if you're going up a stairway, if you're entering the bookshop, if you're or the gift shop, so much more now than bookshop, or you're entering the museum or even within the exhibition galleries themselves, there's a lot of fugitive or some called rogue audio. So mm. you can actually just hear these words and sounds. So these works that were, for example, you know, 112 inches square and mounted on a wall, why did you want to animate? What about that was attractive, appealing, exciting, maybe even ideological? Just allowed for a kind of transformational view of some images that I'm very fortunate that some of these images have entered this sort of insanely irrational notion of canonicity, you know? And, you know, and so arbitrary and brutal and all that. But I think it's more, I don't like the word interesting. It was compelling for me to try to change them, to alter them a bit, to bring new meanings into what those images proposed. I haven't seen the show in, in person yet. I'm totally dying to. But one of the things that seeing video presentations of the installation makes me wonder is if familiar works, you know, works I've seen in 112 inches square, for example, if they land differently because they're now lit up and animated via, via LED, there are a whole lot of Barbara Krugers that are super famous and that we've all seen a hundred times in magazines, on walls at museums and all that. Was some of the attraction making familiarity fresh? Does that have value or utility to you? Well, you know, first of all, I have to say the sentence that you just said never ceases to blow my mind on a certain level, because although it sounds like false humility, you know, I really never thought that that would come to pass, that so many of the, quote, Barbara Krugers, whatever, you know, would become known. And the fact that that the work and the images have entered discussion, discourse, culture outside of a sort of art framework, for instance, is just never ceases to surprise me, thrill me, freak me, you know, on, on so many levels. So let's just, let me just comment on that, you know, as far as refreshing that word. That, <laughs> I, no, I just think it's, it's like added value, quote unquote. I mean, there's just more ideas, more stuff, more baggage, attached to, to the image. But also I have to say that many folks now, I include myself, you know, we're sort of riveted by mouse-like movements. Attention spans have changed so in the decades, 30 years, say. It's interesting the way people's eyes are caught, you know, and, and what engages people and how much time we give to stuff. So I think that that acceleration uh -huh. of reading is also about that. I find that when I'm in front of a traditional, I don't know, I'm searching for language here, a, a traditionally constructed Kruger on a wall that I have two reactions to it. One is to recognize it as a Kruger. They're, they're really distinctive. And I find I get, I nerd out a bit on how the, on, on how the object was made. So a lot of those early black and white and red works. The red is silk screened on, onto photographs. And I find the construction of them pretty interesting. And I wonder how that will be when I see the works in, in, in this new form, how it will change how I interact with them. I don't know. I'm pretty, it's, it's a pretty interesting idea. Um, like, I, I don't know of an artist. I mean, like, you know, video artists often do things where they will, you know, remaster. I'm using the wrong term. You know, re-digit, you know, digit, you know, re-digitally master. What do I know? I'm obviously a typist for a living. You know, they will remaster a, a work digitally and, and make it clearer or fresher. But this is like a whole different thing beyond that. Yeah, I just think it's about, you know, images are captured, moments are captured, bodies are captured. I've talked 
before about that sort of collision of narcissism and voyeurism that makes up our culture today. A lot of the moments in the exhibition are about that capture, the one room, the selfie room, I love myself and you hate me for it, I hate myself and you love me for it. You know, the entry room is a collection of images that I've, you know, over the past four or five years found online based on certain stylistics of my work that people have done. And I've just, you know, conflated them into this huge room inside the hand that had the eye shop, therefore I am. And I really wanted to engage that in the work. I'm focusing on on the adaptation or extension of the work to LED because almost your entire career, you have done this kind of thing migrating works and ideas into new ways of of sharing them and displaying them. And so the example I wanted to raise is what is surely the most reproduced Barbara Kruger, your 1989 untitled Your Body as a Battleground, which is an artwork that is on anyone's list of the most influential works of the second half of the 20th century. You made it hoping the Planned Parenthood and the National Abortion Rights Action League, NARAL, would embrace it and use it, but, you know, around a a march on Washington, but they already had a media campaign planned and, and they went on with their thing. So instead you printed the work out and along with a group of students, I presume your students, pasted it up all over parts of New York. You had been making Krugers for, you know, 10, 15 years by that point. You obviously had a pretty good idea of what a Kruger was and how a Kruger could work on people. And of course you had design experience in magazines going back to the sixties, all of which is to say you were pretty media savvy, pretty public space savvy, but is there anything new you learned from activating a work of yours that way in 1989 that you carried forward? You know, what I think I tried to do is say in your body is a battleground in the different textual changes in the work, These works, the LEDs, are hung in rooms with large vinyls that are not moving. So it's interesting that all of a sudden you're in a room with familiar works and all of a sudden some start changing and others Mm -hmm. don't. So that was my initial idea of to take some sort of stilled image and make it move while others remain stilled. So that was a sort of an aha moment for me. But in changing the text from your body is a battleground, my body is money, your body is a piece of fruit, my coffee is a motorboat, your will is bought and sold, my beliefs are short and sweet, your neck is squeezed, your heart is broken, your skin is sliced, your humility is bullshit. Those are some of the ways that the piece was altered, you know. But with each change, there is a sound. And the sound is a very unsettling sound. I won't name it, but when you see the work, you will understand. I think it doubles the vulnerability of bodies. So it was a way of activating the work in another way or in other ways. Did any of that willingness to activate and change the work come from your experience of, say, pasting a work up around New York in 1989 or or other ways in which you experimented with disseminating work slash ideas out in public since then? Well, you know, the work has always been informed, I guess, starting with my work as a magazine designer, you know, with what the reception of the work might be, you know, who the viewers might be. So when you're doing magazine, you have one idea of a reader. You put stuff up in, on the streets or on billboards. You have an idea of who's passing by, the difference between who's walking by and who's driving by, what the mileage velocity, what sight lines are. Those are the things that you consider when you're out of doors. In terms of this work, I've taken into consideration how reception has changed, not only with moving images, you know, we know about movies and we know about television, but with social media and our online lives, reception and information comes to us in different, sometimes accelerated ways. And I think that this is one way of engaging that. As I prepared to talk to you, I kind of made these lists of things I was noticing in the work over and over again. And there were two sets of images that were far and away 
more common than, than anything else I could find in the work. One was hands, lots of work involving two hands, sometimes appearing to hold something, sometimes not, sometimes just one hand. And then eyes, lots of lots and lots of eyes. Why so many hands? Why so many eyes? Okay. Let me ask, how much of that did we get in the last reply? Um, it, the, the connection went out uh, just as you mentioned eyes. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I don't know how to repeat. I don't know how to rethink. Um, I think hands and eyes are the result of tight shots. They can be very forthcoming. It's a forthcoming overture to a viewer. And I think it's effective in trying to make meanings, which is why I've focused on so many of those motifs. Certainly, there are some pretty famous art historical hands, none more than Michelangelo's. Does the history of hands as a particular focus in art history interest you, or has that been useful to you in knowing that they kind of work? <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. I just think it's a much more elementary retinal approach that it just works visually and it's a powerful overture to a viewer. One other art history question before I forget, because I'm a total art history nerd. As you were beginning to use words in your work in the 1970s, were there artworks that used words that were important to you either as permission or as ways to do it and have it work or just you know, artworks that because they used words got stuck in your head like a pop tune and taught you that it worked? It wasn't even that. I, I It's hard for me to overstate the fluency that I developed for years working with pictures and words at magazines. Mm. It's really, you know, I was I was editing other people's photographs and putting words over them. And really, my my development of that work so came out of that vocation. So, yeah, that that my reference points were really in the development of the fluency of pictures and words in my work really came through my work as a magazine designer and my education in terms of contemporary art was kind of limited as I, you know, had no undergraduate degrees, no graduate degrees. I I just didn't know the terrain that well. I remember I had curated a show at the kitchen called Pictures and Promises, a display of uh, a gathering of, of advertisements and images of both commercial advertisements, TV ads, and, and artist work. And I remember someone said to me, well, what about John Hartfield? And I didn't even know who John Hartfield was. I'm not making, I'm not bragging about my ignorance, but, you know, it's just that I just wasn't aware of other practices, but I was growing increasingly aware of the practices of my peers, obviously, many of whom were using images that were found in culture. I think one of the things about your path that's interesting to me and hopefully is interesting to you know young 20-somethings who are interested in being artists and are trying to figure out how to do that is that in today's art world, in the 2020s, you get your undergraduate degree, maybe you take a year, you know, riding a bike around, you know, Minnesota or something, and then you go get an MFA and you are describing a totally different path and you're explaining how that path was fundamental to what you ended up making and were able to do. And I think that's important in a way that the art world, at least the American art world of the present, has kind of lost. Yeah, I think there's no doubt that the professionalization of being an artist in terms of degrees is it has made a huge difference. I don't know if it's a good difference. I do think it's a way for young people to establish peer groups, feel less alienated. The idea of coming out of it with a huge debt is just horrific. And that has to change on a certain level. However, I'm certainly not nostalgic for any good old days because the old days were never good. I frequently have said these are the good old days only because we're alive to experience them and change them. What I think is now people, there's such a, a range of folks who can now think of themselves, call themselves, be called artists. 
you know, that it's, you know, it used to be 12 white guys in lower Manhattan when I was coming up, you know, and that's not true anymore in terms of class and race and gender. It's so much broader and the work is so much better because of that. And the practices are so less siloed, you know, and there's so much less dictation of what is correct or what is incorrect, you know, and I think that that's much healthier for the production of culture. No, I think that's all true. And it's probably, it probably all creates a climate and culture in which the work of artists can have greater, a greater impact. We talked a moment ago about eyes and hands popping up in the work a lot. The other thing that jumped out at me, you know, as I looked across hundreds of works was that you use pronouns a lot. And more than any other pronoun, you use variations of you, you, your, Y-O-U-R. Are you conscious of leaning on pronouns so much and especially on, you know, air quotes, you? You know, I just think that pronouns have had a way of sort of cutting through the grease, you know, Mm. the whole reach out and touch someone thing. And, you know, the you and the we, the we is important as an inclusion who is that we? It's a very, very fraught and complex naming of groups and viewers, you know, which I hope is absolutely changeable and morphable in every possible way. They, they has been used a lot too. Mm-hmm. But there are also works in the exhibition which are not pronoun led, like cast of characters and oh, absolutely you know, and advertisements for myself and yeah, a number of, of those texts, including the texts on the windows of, of the Art Institute, which which will appear at, at LACMA also, uh, you know, which are just words without pronouns. No, there is definitely stuff without pronouns. It's, I, it's just that I was kind of wowed by how often y- you <laughs> used you and how well it worked. It immediately encourages a viewer to have a direct individual relationship with an object. Yeah. Um, and hopefully they can address that and agree or really decline, you know, uh-uh, <laughs> uh-uh, no way, you know, that there are a million ways to deal with that overture, you know. Looking across an oeuvre, I also found myself thinking about new moves that have come in in recent years your work has always featured a lot of black and white, and it's always featured a, a lot of red, particularly that distinctive bright red that I'm sure there is some Pantone name for that I don't know. And over the years, other colors have begun to come in, especially a just totally awesome green. I don't know. Again, I'm sure it has a name and I don't know it. Why did you choose to expand the, the, your palette, as it were, and why, did, why was that green a green that worked? Well, I started using the green, I think, like 15 years ago and About um, that, yeah. did large scale installations, modern art Oxford in Glasgow and many other venues, too. I, I find that, well, I'm a gray and green person. Those are colors I live with and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, p- people used to tease me whenever we used to, you know, go to the Rose Bowl or something, friends would come with me. I was immediately, gra- if there was something green, I was there, you know? Wow. So uh, it, it's just like, you know, it's just uh, a thing. So uh, gray and green were my sort of go-tos. I just thought it would be Uh, compelling to incorporate interesting in Glasgow when I was doing the installations there at the Gallery of Modern Art Goma in Glasgow and also in the streets there. It became such an issue journalistically whether I was using green or red in terms of the Catholic Protestant thing. It was just so braided, you know, what, you know, what that meant. And of course, that's how site specificity can change meaning so much, you know. But yeah, I've used the green quite a lot and I've chosen it as a sort of main sort of activating motif in this exhibition, both in the title, the sort of catalog cover, which has become the sort of uh, image for the exhibition throughout the installations. The edges of the pages on the catalog are are the same green. Yeah, Uh, and I think, you know, when you think of the title, 
of the exhibition, thinking of you crossed out, I mean me crossed out, I mean you. That to me says so much about what you were suggesting about the pronouns and how that has really marinated in my work for decades, both in their pointed address, but in their shifting positions at the same time. Should we as viewers find or, or consider meaning in whether you're, you use green in a piece or whether you use red in a piece or whether you use a blue, which has come in even more recently in a piece, should we read any of those three colors as signifiers for something? I'm not sure I'm phrasing this very well, but maybe you know what I mean. Oh, God, I, I think that's up to you. <laughs> You know, I don't really know. Now, I should say the back cover of the catalog says thinking of me crossed out. I mean, you crossed out. I mean, me. So, again, there, there's a sort of dual thing going from one to another. Also, the cover I did for W years ago, the Kardashian cover. It's all about me. I mean, you. I mean, me. So, again, using that shifting ego construction, which is always at work somewhere in my work. The last thing that I wanted to ask about that's come into the work is gradient. What about bringing it in have you liked? I like me some gradient, you know, or as they call it in the fashion world, ombre. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it, uh, it offers a kind of dimensionality, a sort of retinal variation, which I I think can be very compelling. It is, it is, especially in the context of the contrast between black and white and the colors and white. It, for me anyway, acts as a slowing down. It encourages my physical act of looking and thinking about what I'm seeing to shift, to downshift, if you will. Yeah. I find it almost acts physically in that way. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I mean, because there are decisions whether whether the gradient goes from top to bottom, left to right, you know, stuff that is considered all the time, depending on how it appears, where it will appear, you know, where in a building it would appear, where, how far the reading will be, everything just taken into consideration like that. And again, this exhibition offers me the opportunity to just problem solve in so many different spaces and venues. So I never take that for granted that this has happened and it's happening. I found that I've my, my brain or the, or the link between looking and thinking with gradient, it works like painting. I think of it as like a painter's move, like a, like a brush moving across the canvas and being loaded and then maybe less loaded with paint, it just, it, it just brings a different physicality to the work for me. I'm kind of fascinated by it. <laughs> I want to close by asking about three products you developed or had developed for the Art Institute's store, because I understand that they were specific requests of yours. One is a, a leather clutch on which it says money talks. One is a wall clock, which is related to Untitled Too Big to Fail, and it has red minute and hour hands. And the third is a puzzle featuring the exhibition title. And they're all, you know, quite, you know, reasonably priced. These are not like Art World edition four-figure prices. I think the wall clock is like $45 or something. Yeah, in fact, I think I may buy a wall clock. Um, <laughs> <laughs> why those three things? Why did why did you want that? What about, what about that worked for you? I think a clock was an interesting project. I hadn't done that before. And the puzzle too, especially I was saying coming out of COVID, but I don't think we're coming out of COVID yet. But during COVID, I think that puzzling in its material form has sort of, you know, had more of a place in people's... Totally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I just wanted to engage the puzzle thing. I know a lot of uh, institutions and, and artists have done it. But uh, I thought it would be pretty cool to do. And the money talks thing on the clutch was just, you know, kind of nice, nice little little item, small, talks the talk, you know, says what, in fact, it might contain. And uh, yeah, just seemed to be interesting projects. I love that. I particularly love the puzzle concept. I have an artist friend who made like a table size work 
on paper and then had it mounted on board and puzzle cut using like a cookie cutter. I guess you can buy these, these cookie cutter things that'll puzzle cut board. So yeah, I think, I think other artists have noticed the, uh, the pandemic puzzle mania too. Well, well, I think also when you see the show or whether you've seen things online, both your body is a battleground yeah. and I shop there for I am the video itself is made up of puzzle pieces. Yeah. And, you know, we, we, we've talked or at least I've referenced a couple of times how the changes in display you've made, including the addition of gradient, really changed the way the eye works and a person interacts with often a familiar work and the puzzle pieces and the way they fill in in front of a viewer are, you know, really do that. They really change the relationship between the viewer and the object and thus the viewer and your idea, the, the idea you're communicating with the work. Well, that's great. But, you know, the sound was compelling, too, because I I found, you know, this sort of netherworld of online puzzling construction. And I just thought, oh, this would be great to utilize this. You know, I that was about five years ago that I started working on that, that even the sound and the clicking and how they come together to form an image, the timing of it, you know, how it's accelerated. They were all really interesting problems to solve for me. 50 years in and still giving artists, especially new ideas about how to play with ideas and, and, and make them fresh. Barbara Kruger, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska, presents a special live taping of the Modern Art Notes podcast with the performance by Maya Dunitz, live at Low End on November 10th at 7 p.m. Central. Dunitz is a Tel Aviv, Israel-based artist and musician who has performed internationally for the past 30 years. She works in the thin lines between music, visual art, performance, technological research, and philosophy. Her compositions are commissioned by renowned performers and ensembles around the world. She is currently the sound art and experimental music artist-in-residence at Bema Center in collaboration with artist David Lemoyne. They're creating eight new site-responsive installations for Dunitz's solo exhibition at Bema Center, which opens in May 2022. Performances at Low End are an integral part of Bema Center's sound art and experimental music program and are presented with lead support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. This one-of-a-kind program provides unique resources to support the research, creation, and presentation of new work by artists working in sound, composition, voice, and experimental forms of music, and low-end, a live music venue. Free admission. In-person attendance requires RSVP at bemacenter.org slash events. The performance and the Modern Art Notes podcast will also stream live at twitch.tv slash bemacenter and at facebook.com slash bemacenter. Point of Departure, 1958 to Present at Sheldon Museum of Art draws its title from a 1958 jazz recording by Andrew Hill, that both exemplifies and defies its time. The exhibition surveys the evolution of abstraction. From the late 1950s, after the first wave of artists associated with abstract expressionism, to the present. The artists featured in Point of Departure embrace the primacy of their materials, using visual language rooted in observation. Works by Tony Bashara, Ross Blechner, Lisa Corinne Davis, Ron Gorchov, Carmen Herrera, Norman Lewis, Jill Nathanson, Odili Donald Odita, Larry Poons, Mavis Pusey, Stanley Whitney, Sue Williams, William T. Williams, Terry Winters, and others show fluid interplay between abstraction and depictive references. Point of Departure is on view at Sheldon Museum of Art from August 13th through December 31st, 2021. For more information, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Samantha Nye. Her work is on view in two exhibitions at the MFA Boston. Samantha Nye, My Heart's in a Whirl, which closes this weekend, and New Light, Encounters, and Connections, which is on view through July 24th, 2022. Nye's work broadens artistic constructs of beauty and sexuality by queering them and by foregrounding older people in her paintings, installations, and videos. Samantha Nye, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, thank you so much. 
When did you start thinking about what was missing from queer culture, specifically lesbian culture? And how did you come to think that you should address such in your work in art? I mean, I think just as I entered the art world, I was slightly older. I didn't go to undergrad right away out of high school. And so I had a really queer life and I had a life that included many different spaces, um, trans-inclusive lesbian spaces, separatist spaces. And so when I entered the art world, it was kind of an immediate acknowledgement that something was missing. But I also was immediately introduced to queer artists that were making work that felt like family. So I kind of had a double a double situation there, like understanding that I had a lineage of queer artists and also realizing there were things that I wasn't seeing represented. There are two works up now at the MFA Boston. One is a painting and one is an installation work. And the installation work more than the painting is, is what my next question about question is about. Some of the works the installation does is is querying a set of earlier technologies and forms, technologies and forms developed in the 1960s for, you know, American dance clubs and, and, and party venues. Why was querying those technologies and forms, if forms is the right word, a valuable strategy? I think um, at the time that I was introduced to that technology called the Scopatone. So there's the Scopatone video, and then there's the Scopatone machine, which was sort of the jukebox slash, you know, screen that these videos were played on. When I was introduced to those, I was already making a series of videos with a cast of women that came from my grandmother's friend groups and my mother's friend groups. And so I had been remaking films from the 40s, films from the 60s. And so when I when I got introduced to this technology, it was a very immediate place for me to sort of attach everything I'd been working on. And also it became a mild obsession. Like I, I love that technology and I love the videos. And so as soon as I saw a Scopatone, which I don't know if the, the listeners have the joy of knowing what a Scopatone video is like, but I hope they'll look it up. The second I, w- I saw one, I just thought, yeah, this is the right, this is the right place for me. It sort of combine everything I cared about. A Scopatone allowed for the production or display, I guess, both of, I don't know, a proto music video, only with a heck of a lot more Velveeta than what we grew up on in the 1980s. They're very, very, very simple. I mean, like way more simple than a TikTok and very obviously fake. Like, you know, apparently lip syncing had yet to be perfected. (laughs) Oh my God. I, I feel like you're talking directly to Neil Sadaka here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that's maybe that's a good a good maybe we should talk about Neil Sadaka <laughs> about very heterosexual man Neil Sadaka. Sure, sure, of course, the very very. <laughs> what what is the Neil Sadaka that got you kind of started down this path and then how did you riff on it and why, I guess. I mean, I came from a family who loved Neil Sadaka. So, my grandmother was always singing Neil Sadaka. I mean, I think she ran into him in in a parking lot at a bar one time and told that story over and over. So for me, Neil Sadaka had been a part of my life, dancing in the kitchen with her. And this Neil Sadaka Scopatone was the very first Scopatone video I had ever seen. So again, that when I say it was so immediate and it was everything that I cared about already, I really mean it. Like it was already there for me. That That video is called Calendar Girl, and we will have a link to the YouTube of it on the show page at manpodcast.com. And let me say, you got to click on it. (laughs) You do. You definitely do. (laughs) Agreed. Um, And the thing about Neil Sadaka that I always enjoyed as I got older and understood that there was these sort of rumors about his sexuality is that when I saw this, this video, it was so like you, like you were sort of nodding to, it was just this really poorly done performance of heterosexuality as he's sort of collecting his women in the song. It's each and every day of the year. So he has a girl for every day of the year and it's performed beautifully and poorly all at the same time, depending on what you're looking for. (laughs) So given how truly terrible it is, why did you want to do something with it? See, I love it. So I I acknowledge the why it's perceived as terrible. And I, I love that. But I come from a, a background up to that point of drag and camp and loving David Lynch and John Waters and kind of seeing these sort of theatrical 
cringe and celebration, these moments where both things can be true. And so I feel like when I when I watched this and I understood the content that was with it all, like the queerness, the hidden queerness, the sort of misogyny and the song and dance. Like I said, these are things that I loved. So I, I understand that it's terrible. And I also think it's wonderful. <laughs> Within this particular work of yours, um, as it's installed at the MFA, there's a clear decision to queer a number of specific aesthetics. Among the aesthetics you're queering are, are dance clubs from, from the 60s and 70s, Pocono's-style honeymoon hideaways with the heart-shaped hot tub or bathtub. And then in the painting the MFA recently acquired, you're queering you know, a 19th century and earlier art historical tradition, specifically the tradition of the bather. So that's all a long way of saying I, I understand what aesthetics you've chosen to queer, but maybe one way of learning about the decisions you make is to learn about the decisions you rejected. So were there, were there things you thought about queering as you tackled this work in 2019 and 2020 and, and chose not to? You know, both of these projects, I have to admit, are really long-term projects for me. So I see them as two different sides of the same coin. With the video work, I'm remaking these mid-century videos and then with the, the paintings, the same, with the Slim Aaron's photographs. And so the reason I'm struggling answering that particular question is because the parameters were really set for me in the onset of these projects. And those parameters have expanded a bit, but they've been the same as I've been working through these both, both these series. So with the video, I guess one way to answer that, you know, certain scopatones make the most sense to me. Certain scopatones set up a world that feels best to, to queer and to remake. And the same is true for certain Slimarin's photographs. But once I choose one, I'm kind of all in. Before we pivot to the paintings a bit, how do you include your family in the work and why? I have almost always been including my mother and grandmother as long as she was alive in all the work that I made. This started pretty early for me in undergraduate. I very quickly, and, and I've been working with women in my family and older women for so long, <laughs> it very quickly dawned on me that I had much less interest in, in terms of painting, painting younger, younger people, younger flesh. And as I started making videos, the same thing became true for me as well. By the time I made this series, this cast of women had been working with me for at least five to six years, both in painting projects and in video projects. I would say both, you know, in less successful paintings and less successful videos, but it was wonderful to create a constant conversation with these women, both family members and family friends of family members. So, but, you know, by the time I got into this, it was actually a really easy conversation. Like, I'm going to make another video. This is the, the remake. Most of the women in Calendar Girls specifically already knew the song, loved the song and wanted to be in it. But in the beginning, you know, in terms of my mother and grandmother, I mean, there was lots of conversation around where the line is, what's the boundary. I did a piece in, in undergraduate where I remember my grandmother saying, OK, OK, I understand. So we're making lesbian porn. Great. It was a joke for her to say things like that, to say things like we're making lesbian porn, but also a self-conscious reality that people would be seeing it. And so I had to work a lot with their boundaries about what, what was the limits for them, what interested them in the remake, and what did not interest them. So in the paintings, I appreciate that you're jumping off from Slim Aaron's photographs. Slim Aaron's was a photographer of a certain kind of mid-century to 1970s-ish, I don't know, uh, cheesy upper-middle-class bourgeois genre? <laughs> kind, of, kind of design magazine slash fashion magazine slash watered-down Versace? Or maybe like turpentine-thin Versace? And so that's there. I don't mean to say that's not there. But, but in, in the pictures of elderly lesbians lounging and frolicking by pools... You're also absolutely taking aim at the very white and very heteronormative bather tradition, you know, that goes all the way back to Titian at least, but that, I don't know, and the way you're doing it feels very much kind of Corbet to Pouvi, you know, like maybe 1860 to 1895 or something. What about that French bather tradition was of interest? 
I think you kind of hit it on the head when you were talking about like this sort of like very white tradition of, of the bathers. Who is allowed to have this privilege, this, this act of leisure, the safety? And that continues through with Hockney and Eric Fischel. You know, I think a lot about like who is safe and who is able to really lounge and really, really, really be a part of that kind of aspirational leisure class. And so I think that that's kind of one of the places that I wanted to also take aim at, because I think that tradition of bathers has sort of continued in all of those ways. And still, I mean, I see I see things that can that that tradition of the, the bather exists now up to, you know, like the Instagram influencer. Oh, I hadn't even thought of that. But yes, that makes perfect sense. The painting the MFA recently acquired and has on view in a new acquisitions-ish show is titled Attractive People Doing Attractive Things in Attractive Places, Double Your Pleasure, Double Your Pleasure. It's like super French, only it's obviously not France. You know, there's a, a, a site of bathing, in this case a swimming pool. There are green lush gardens. There are women in every state of undress frolicking about the pool. We'll have an image of this on Podcast. Dot com, of course. But in the middle distance, pretty much right where the vanishing point of the painting would be, is a huge Ann Truitt sculpture. It's Morning Choice from 1968. It's in the collection of the St. Louis Art Museum now. Why Ann Truitt and why that very prominent place in the middle of the painting? You know, when I set out to make one of these paintings, I'm trying to kind of recast the whole thing. And so often that's the people. And sometimes it's also the artwork. And sometimes it's also the architecture and the buildings. And so at times I'll replace, you know, a lavish mansion with something that would be like a now defunct lesbian resort or queer resort from the 1970s, right? And I'll kind of hide it in there so you may or may not realize that it doesn't belong in this poolscape. And so this piece that you're, that you're talking about, Double Your Pleasure, in the center of that pool was a really large steel, what I would consider kind of like masculine sculpture of a very similar shape to an Ann Truitt. And it felt like one of the most exciting reasons to remake this because I knew right away the way in which the artwork would be remade and the way in which the women that I placed in this painting would kind of function around that work. And I have little jokes with myself all the time. That piece is in St. Louis. We talked about St. Louis a little bit before this started. My grandmother's from St. Louis, and in the painting, I placed her right next to the paint, to the Ann Truitt. And so, you know, there's a, there's some reasons that are drenched in art his, history, and then there are reasons that are just kind of fun jokes for myself. That was one of the Ann Truitt's reasons. And the other is that the the, the color, it's, it's like hyper, you know, acidic. It's like, you know, almost like technicolor to note back to the scopitone work. And so I, I knew that that piece absolutely needed to be in that, in that position and kind of be the, the focal point of the, of the painting. And then I like to think of this as, as a reality, you know, a reality that I'm making. And so like, what, what if we were all at a pool? And I say we, because I imagine a future of myself being uh, an elder, luckily enough to be in this pool, but what would it feel like to be just drenched in pleasure and be swimming near an Ann Truitt? I can't, I really can't think of a better, <laughs> a better day. <laughs> we'll have the painting on, on manpodcast.com, as I said before, but we'll have an image of the Truitt by itself. <laughs> As well, it is a classic rectangular truet standing tall. It's almost too girthy to be phallic. And it's, you know, four colors, orange, pinkish purple, blue, and, and kind of a grassy green. And, and you represent it faithfully within the picture. But because of how you use it and what it's surrounded by in your painting, it inevitably feels to a viewer like you are queering truet too. Were you mindful of wanting to, you know, true, it was not queer, at least so far as I or we know. Were you mindful of doing that work or of complicating a story that way? Definitely. I mean, I, you know, I will, uh, I will say, I will admit now that I want all the great artists to be queer. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm welcoming her into the fold. You know, the truth is, is I, in terms of this kind of monumental scale, and I'm certainly interested in contemporary sculptures and contemporary artworks being placed in, in slim errands. I just, I haven't done so. I haven't, I haven't put something, you know, from a, from a, a peer or someone making work you know, making work that is happening in this very moment. And so I'm interested in, 
in placing older works into the into the painting and works by women, I'd love to place more queer sculptures into the work. And I hope that that happens. One of the things I started thinking about when I, I zeroed in on the Truett was how a lot of the things you do, whether it's the inclusion of an artwork within your painting or the way you handle figures or the way you handle paint, for that matter, does is reminds me of Robert Colescott. The, the paintings are eagerly over the top, just like Colescott's paintings. They're eagerly sketchy, kind of like Colescott's paintings, wink, wink at the double meaning of the word. And they both are pointedly serious in their engagement and critique, but also absurd within it. This is all a long way of asking if Colescott's important to you. You know, I mean, I've, I certainly look at Colescott, but I haven't thought of these connections to the extent that you're naming. And so I, I guess the fairest way to me to, for me to answer is to say, no, not really, but maybe on a subconscious level, but I'm going to be paying more attention now. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to say on the record that I'm super honored that you're bringing a connection between our works that feels, you know, in terms of color and yeah, it feels like a lovely connection that I'm glad you made. Yeah, there are a lot of winking nods. I mean, often in a, in a Colescott, a figure in a Colescott will wink at the viewer, kind of blowing up the fourth wall. And that doesn't totally happen in your work, but boy, it comes real close. It's so funny. I've been really, really playing with that idea in the studio, kind of on the fence, like hopping back and forth. Like, do I do, I do it or do I not? So maybe this conversation is necessary for me to take the plunge. <laughs> One other art historical maybe reference I wanted to ask about that's in a number of the paintings is that you, I think more than once, maybe two or three or four times, have made bather paintings that feature women peeing. So there are two possible art historical references that, that kind of come to mind. One is spurting fountains, a la Rome, and the other is Danai paintings, you know, paintings by by, by Golchus or Titian that jump off of Ovid and have Zeus presenting himself to a woman as a shower of gold coming through a window, paintings that are inevitably golden shower paintings and on which artists have riffed, artists like Wolfgang Tillmans have riffed with literal golden showers. Were either of those references what you had in mind or wanted to take a shot at? Hands down, yes. And just loving, loving the concept of a golden shower and the sort of like the way in which peeing in the pool, I mean, it is the worst thing you can do, right? Like that's what we're taught. I mean, I, I mean, I, I grew up in Florida. Swimming was a part of my life. I mean, peeing in the pool was outlawed. And so like, I love this art historical reference to the golden shower. And I also love just kind of fucking with slim errands in that way. And just like desanitizing this reference. And again, kind of like queering Querying that reference again. I think the golden shower is going to be an endless reference. And, and absolutely, both of those references you brought up are really important. You know, there's also how in the 19th century French bather tradition, there is a an improvement, if you will, upon the purity of classical tradition. I mean, like Pouvis, Pouvis de Chavannes bathers are like maddeningly overly perfected. And it seems to me like a lot of what you're doing is just throwing spitballs at, at that over-refinement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. In some way, you know, I think a lot about mannerism in that way, like kind of thinking less about refinement and more about like a sort of, sort of like a camp, a camp elegance and also like an unnatural elegance. And then I also think of like John Waters. And that's where you get kind of, for me, these like very disparate, references that kind of combine. And I think like the, the peeing in, in a beautifully elegant pool is kind of where those things meet. Samantha Nye, thank you. Ah, thank you so much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.